Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. Now, what if you had access to classic interviews with hundreds of the biggest artists of all time? And what if those interviews had essentially been locked in a vault for centuries? Well, okay, decades. And what if we had a show where our sole purpose was to let you hear the best parts of those interviews? That's what Famous Lost Words is all about. Joining me now, my co-host and creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Now, we met a few months ago and immediately started geeking out about music, and we realized that between the two of us, we had participated in literally hundreds of interviews. Now, Tom, he's sort of the gatekeeper of all the archives. Yes. Don't call me any other names. You, you, were, call, you were making some reference to me being like uh, the three-headed dog in Harry Potter, like the gatekeeper of... <laughs> Do you want to be Hagrid's dog, Fluffy? Because yeah, call could... call me Fluffy and you die. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, when we met Christopher, one of the things that I'd been ruminating about this idea for uh, for a number of years about what to do with these classic interviews that we have, and mm. I've always I would just pick you know just grab a CD or a tape from the archives and just listen to it on my way home. And I went, there's something here. We need to do something. And the minute I met you, I didn't know you at all. And I just went, I think this might be my guy. Like, this might be the guy who I can pull this off with. And so you and I talked briefly a few weeks later. Well, it wasn't brief at all. We went on and on forever. (laughs) We did. Like a couple of schoolgirls, you know, talking about their favorite artists. And for us, our favorite artists are, you know, going back to Elvis and Buddy Holly and all the way up to, you know, uh, all the way up to Taylor Swift. So, yeah. so, and everything in between, and you know, some pretty some left roads going one way into you know punk and new wave, and then uh, right turns into funk and uh, and you know psychedelic. So it really does cover the gamut, and so do the uh, so does the depth of the interview archive. And it's so exciting to be able to kind of uh, bring them out and have people listen to them, and uh, we're playing the best parts of them. Uh, so well, we sort through all the bad interviews, so you don't have to, right? Then. I'm excited. I I think this must be one of the richest troves of interviews anywhere. I would think so. I mean, and it goes then, back to the fifties, and then as, which is as, remarkable. Yes, that's true. And as we, you know, as as I start sending you stuff, then all of a sudden you start sending me this like awesome video, including uh, some of the stuff we're going to be hearing the audio from this week, the Paul McCartney stuff, mm-hmm. and it's incredible because. You know, I've been part of interviews. I've produced lots of interviews. I've even done some interviews. But usually I've been there in the room while, you know, other radio personalities way more famous than me have been doing the interviews. You're the guy at Much who did hundreds of interviews. And if I'm not mistaken, you've even written a book about that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, if you don't mind. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coming up in our very first episode, we have... As you're saying, a fascinating interview with Janet Jackson from 2004. Now, this is shortly after the infamous wardrobe malfunction incident at the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. Now, for me, a wardrobe malfunction is tomato sauce on the white shirt, but that wasn't <laughs> the case for Janet Jackson. No, it was not. No. And she was very shy about it, but more about that in a few minutes. We've also got a series starting for you called When Rock Stars Attack. <laughs> Fluffy, you're going to be called upon. <laughs> it's a series of little moments when interviews just go south. They go off the rails or when, you know, the rock star needs to vent a little because they have a pressure-filled existence, don't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. And whether the target is a critic or a former bandmate. Yes, or in some cases, the interviewer. Yes, for sure. Oh, I've had that <laughs> Been happen. There. Yes, I've had that happen to me. Stephen Stills went off on me once, and uh, we'll play that clip in 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 the coming weeks. And I know you've had people go off on you, and you know you're just 
we're just trying to do a job or we're trying to ask a, a you know a question that's going to elicit a good response and for the most part in our minds their response is way more important than our question. Mm-hmm. And when they get stuck on the question or the wording of a question or the intent of a question and they go off on you, it just feels horrible, doesn't it? It does. I mean, Elvis Costello did not like me. But um, <laughs> but I listened back to it years later and I realized that it was vintage Elvis. It was just full of spit and vinegar and yeah. it was perfect material. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't feel very good about it. Oh, I bet. I bet because... When you're talking with someone who's a legend or a legend in the making and all of a sudden they come back at you and treat you badly. I remember I did an interview with uh, with Jewel on, uh, right around the time of her first album. I'd done tons of reading. I felt like I knew her so well. And then when I went in and she treated me like I was like a, like an idiot from mm. the word go and it just diminished me. I was just devastated for like weeks afterwards. Ooh. But thankfully I got over it and so did she, by the way. She, uh, the c- couple interviews later, uh, she was terrific. But I wasn't the interviewer. It was somebody else. <laughs> uh, she redeemed herself. Well, <laughs> another regular feature is called The Greatest Songs of All Time. I mm-hmm. think we know what that's going to be about. To mm-hmm. no one's surprise, we tell the story behind some of the best songs ever and I love these kind of stories. And Today, it's a rock classic from the mid-70s with one of the best guitar riffs ever. For our first interview, we go back to the spring of 2004. Now, a few weeks earlier, Janet Jackson had been part of the biggest controversy in Super Bowl history, the infamous wardrobe malfunction. Now, Janet briefly went into hiding, but something brought her out of it. I guess she had to promote her new album, Demita Joe, right? Now, Tom, you were in the studio when she came by, right, for the interview? Yeah, I sure was. And it was really interesting because it was, you know, post-Super Bowl, as you say, and it was on everyone's mind. So the fact that we were interviewing her was a really big deal. But also, they're asking us not to talk about it. So how do you talk about something that everybody wants to ask you about? And you can see we kind of get around it through the back door, as I like to say, by asking her more about the media climate in the U.S. at the time. So we go there, and then she brings it around to the Super Bowl, and she even said, I'm not, I don't really talk about this, but here's, here's one or two facts about that. And so at least we got something out of her in this interview. And, you know... Janet is notoriously shy, and you, you know you've known that. We had interviewed her a, a few years earlier, and uh, and of course we did it uh, just after the Super Bowl. Uh, but and it took her a while to kind of thaw out. But once she did, and you'll notice that moment. It's when Roger Ashby says uh, talks about the discovery of the Jackson Five. So you'll notice right. that moment when she goes, "Oh yeah," and then she kind of warms up a little bit more. So so it. Turns into really a terrific interview, but she is shy, and you've had experience with that, too. Yeah, I love this clip. I think she opens up wonderfully, which is, of course, you know, mm-hmm. a, a tribute to the people who are doing the interview. Also diabolically clever how you managed to get her to talk about the Super Bowl. I just <laughs> want to give you props for that one, okay? So let's, let's hear part of that interview. Here's Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis with Janet Jackson in 2004. On that last tour, you performed a song, Would You Mind, from the last CD, and then each night you brought a guy up on stage, you strapped yeah. him down, straddled him. <laughs> So I want to know how the guy got picked and how I can get in on that. <laughs> well, I picked the guy. You picked the guy? You did? Yeah. There are nights when the girls, the dancers, I mean, as soon as I set foot on the stage, I'll, I'll start combing the audience for a guy. Because I have to find someone to bring up and mm-hmm. someone that I hope 
will you know be interesting for the for the the audience and it's not always somebody in the front row necessarily no it's not and mm-hmm. the girls will I'll ask the girls to help me and they'll come back like a few numbers before I do that when they know I can get a quick break like in quick change and yep. poke their heads in yep. and give me their you know who they think I should pick and it's always the cute guys <laughs> they always want me to bring the cute guys and say oh he's real cute Jen you gotta bring him up he's no my guy is cuter it's like oh, wow. that's not really what I'm looking for just who would be really interesting for the audience so it was everything I could do when I sat there with Roger during that uh, Janet Jackson concert to hold him back and say, no, she picks you, honey. You don't pick her. Who's going to rush yeah, yeah, the you stage? You haven't answered the second part of my question yet. <laughs> I'm curious to know, coming from uh, Gary, Indiana, and then moving to Los Angeles and being surrounded by all those great Motown people like yeah. Smokey Robinson and Diana Ross. And Marvin Gaye. Marvin oh, Gaye, God, yeah. Stevie Wonder. When I was a kid, yeah. Running around the house. I mean, you, you know, go out by the pool and there's Diane. and I mean, everybody. It was really it's such fun. But as a kid, you, you really don't think no. about stuff like that. And I think back on it now and thought, how lucky was I? Yeah. You know, I want to ask you, too, who did discover the Jackson 5? Yeah. What's the truth? You know, they say it was that? Diana Ross. They say it was Gladys Knight. Who, who was it? It was uh, Bobby Taylor. Bobby Taylor, I've heard that, okay, too. Okay, Bo- tell me who Bobby Taylor is. Bobby Taylor was a Motown artist. He had a group called Bobby Taylor and the Vancouvers. They had a couple of hits. I love... Go ahead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know much more than that about no, Bobby Taylor. No, but, but he, you know, and I remember, and I haven't seen him in so, so long. I remember as a kid coming to L.A., and he used to pick me up all the time. We first moved to California, and he used to take me to... It's called... Oh, I can't remember the place. It's like a Dairy Queen kind of a place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like a Tasty Freeze or something like that? Yeah, like that, yeah, but yeah, a little yeah. devil. It was orange with a little... I can't remember the name of the place now. Juicy something or something uh-huh. juicy. And we used to get like a little orange drink all the time. And that was my little trip with him. He used to, I used to love that. He used to pick me up, but... Is he still around? What's, what's he I, doing? You know, I don't know. I, yeah. I, 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 I hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Those are great memories to have, though, aren't they? Very nice memories to have. And what about Smokey Robinson? Those eyes. I remember those <laughs> eyes. They were so light. Yeah, it was It was really wonderful. Um, uh, oh, Sammy Davis Jr., I remember yeah. being at the house. Mm-hmm. So all of these people would have influenced you then, musically, a, of course. Right? A great deal. The mm-hmm. biggest was uh, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. and, and Sammy for myself. I was always drawn to the guys as opposed to the women, to the females. Mm-hmm. Well, people like Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, of course, wrote a lot of their own material, where some of those other Motown artists didn't, so maybe you were... Maybe that's what it is. ...drawn to them for that reason. Maybe so. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I, maybe I always thought it had something to do with being so partial to my brothers as opposed to my sisters, so being mm-hmm. drawn to them in that way. But, mm-hmm. you know, you might be right. Mm. I wonder what it's like for you to travel with as many people as you do, and you know you've always got people around you, and it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you know, you've been in the news so much lately over the last few months. Heavy media scrutiny. How do you deal with all of that? Because even us, as as viewers, readers, we don't know what to believe when we see that stuff. How do you deal with it all? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 difficult at times, but you just you got to stay focused. At least that's the way that I I. I I approach it. I mean, I have my job to do, which I love. And and with all that drama that happened, I still had an album to finish. Mm-hmm. So I, I completed the album, and then there was all the other work that needed to be done after that. So, Do you try to avoid reading some of the stuff that's written about you? or do you, do you, uh, how, how do you stay focused? Um, I don't read a lot. I mean, it's, it was kind of hard not to see. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't, you know, so. But it, the funny the part about it is that the day that I came home after the Super Bowl, which I really don't talk about anymore, but I'll right. tell you this story. Okay. I, I came home and there was a major storm in L.A., so my cable was out. I didn't see television for two days, so that was great. So I didn't have to deal with it for two days. Then there was everything after that. That was divine intervention. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Good timing. Cannot wait to see you on tour. Thank you guys so much. I I really have fun every time I'm, I'm with you guys, so I appreciate that really for making me feel very comfortable. Well, thank you. That makes us feel good, too. Yeah. And, and you know you're welcome to come back. If you're coming through town on a tour, you're always welcome to pop in here. Thank yeah. you. All right. That was Janet Jackson from 2004. That's a nice clip. Oh, I know. I love that chat. And uh, as you can see, we really kind of warmed her up, and she got into a gr- great place, and she was happy to be there uh, when it was all said and done. And I think, you know, it really is about sitting like a safe place for these people to be themselves because they do run into a lot of shows and a lot of kind of zoo-type morning shows where they have to be on the defensive because they don't know what these crazy guys are going to be saying to them, crazy Mm -hmm. men and women are going to be saying to them on these shows, right? Right. And so they come in with their guard partially up, and if you're already shy like Janet is – then, then your guard is way up, and you, you know about you know Janet being notoriously shy. You in, you interviewed her fairly early on in her, very early on. It was right career. after the release of Control, so her career was really just starting to take off. She was extremely shy, and when she walked into the Much Music environment, it was like, oh, oh, she did not want to deal with that at all. So actually, for the very first and I think the only time, we ended up having to do the interview in a tiny little audio booth because she was just so freaked out by what was going on all around us. So the TV interview in a tiny little audio booth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we shot it, but it's it was knee-to-knee, let's yeah. say. <laughs> but she was lovely, and it's you know it's that thing. You try to make somebody feel at home and relaxed as best you can. I mean, it's a somewhat artificial environment for a conversation, but you know the good ones find a way to relax into it, and she did. She was mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked about her family's reaction to control and how her mother didn't like the moaning, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> and, uh, and the best one, she told me how Michael had helped school her on uh, the art of disguise including a false mustache so she could go and hang out down on Venice Beach without being recognized. (laughs) Isn't that great? Wow, that's quite the curvy guy with a mustache coming down Venice Beach. (laughs) I can just see it. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at alarmforce.com. So, Christopher, you are... Probably well-known, most well-known in Canada as the very first VJ on Much Music. You and J.D. Roberts, right? J.D. Roberts, yeah. Who's now John Roberts at Fox Fox News. News. That's right. (laughs) So, um, and you outline all of your experiences at Much in a book that you just published a few months ago called Is This Live? And I've started, I'm about halfway through the book. It's extraordinary. And I love how the stories are kind of bite-sized so you you can read like, 
five or six minutes at a time, or you can go for a good uh, a good hour, and you'll get so much information. Oh, I'm glad you're enjoying it. I had a ball writing it. Yeah. I went back and talked to all the people that I worked with, virtually every artist who was popular at the time, and they all wanted to tell the story. They mm-hmm. all have very affectionate sort of look back at that particular time period. And, um, yeah, the book, you're right. You can take it in, in bites of any size. It's always interesting to me to know where people start. Uh, I think most people have started with the worst interviews chapter. (laughs) (laughs) And there were a few, as we have discussed. Right, right. But, uh, no, it was really a celebration. It's, I mean, that book, it was a love letter, not a tell-all. And, and, you know, it was a great time in music in Canada. It was just an explosive time creatively. uh, And I just tried to capture as much of that as I could. And one of the things about that era, I think, is that In the early 80s, early to mid 80s, all of the classic rock artists from the 60s and 70s were still very much around and very much still making music. Some of them were struggling with the video era, I think. Yes. But they were they were all there so you're talking to the to the biggest artists of all time who are still relatively in their prime um and so you got great stories from them and also you know cutting edge artists like uh you know like uh, uh Duran Duran and mm-hmm. all of those artists that came through new wave and the and the hair bands not that i would call them a cutting edge but the, <laughs> but they were still rising stars during that time and you know guns and roses through like all of that so it it may not have been the best decade for music but it was probably the best decade for music interviews in many regards it was new for the artists to have um somebody from the media taking that sort of microscopic a look at their lives and their careers. I mean, it was really only a few years earlier that, um, you know, music journalist shows like the new music started to go behind the scenes. They were going, you know, in the backstage area. They were going, you know, in the rehearsals. They were going on the tour bus to get the inside story. Before that, if you wanted to know about your favorite artist, you know, you watched Midnight Special or mm-hmm. Rock Concert or those kind of shows. Mm-hmm. So the artists had to get used to the idea that it was, you know, kind of full exposure now. Yes. And it was a new era. It was great to be part of it. Well, and one of the things that I'm sure was great to be part of is uh, meeting Paul McCartney, interviewing oh. him at length. Um, how many times did you get a chance to do that? McCartney? Yeah. Just once. But oh, okay. it was fantastic. Well, and, and you know, you, we, you know this. You can't help it. You're a fan. You, sure, you come in as a pro and you've done your research and you know all the questions you're going to ask, but ultimately you're sitting there going, well, that's Paul McCartney <laughs> from the Beatles, right? I've only met him once and it was in the hallway here at the radio station and he signed my copy of Sgt. Pepper, the CD. Oh. So so I've got the CD, the, the, the front cover of Sgt. Pepper with just Paul McCartney on it and it is my most prized possession. Mm. Next to my children and my family, <laughs> that's it. I, I I just cherish it so much. And it was only a very brief encounter, and he was terrific. He signed it, and I, I didn't want to bother him because there was a lot of other people who wanted autographs as well. But yeah. it was a big moment. Well, he is extremely gracious. I mean, he's always on. He's always an entertainer. Mm-hmm. But he also has a nice way of sort of breaking down what he knows is going to be a big moment for the person that's meeting him. He, he understands his place in, in things. And, and he was like that when I first met him. I was wearing a, a, a jacket that had uh, sort of asymmetric lapels. The first thing he did, he walks right to me and goes, hey, what are we going to do with this? We're gonna... He grabs my jacket and starts <laughs> playing with it. And it just broke the ice. Yeah. 
and and then he's joking and he's doing funny voices and impersonations and it was very entertaining as you'll as you'll hear um he was doing the setup for the tour called Flowers in the Dirt mm-hmm. in 1989. He hadn't toured since Wings Over America in 77. So this was a real comeback tour. And one of the most remarkable things is that he was doing songs uh, from the Beatles catalog that he had never performed on stage before. Like You you, uh, you Never Give Me Your Money mm-hmm. and um, Lady Madonna and Let It Be. So seeing these songs, and we got a full-scale rehearsal, was breathtaking and fantastic. One of the first questions I asked him was, how do you go about choosing songs for this tour? The first move was I sat around and thought, if I was going to see his show, what would I want to see him do? And I just thought that at first. And I ended up writing down a list of about 35 songs that over the years that I've written that I might want to see him do, you know, which not all of which we've ended up doing, but, um, And it was a great, real big list, you know. There's about two hours of stuff there. And uh, that wasn't without, that was without any uh, modern stuff. So it was like, and it was leaving out things like she came in through the bathroom window. Um, You know, I mean, there's people watching, she came in through the what? It's a Beatles song, folks. But, um, you know, left out quite a lot of kind of importanty stuff for for Beatles history. and then I just developed it from there. Then there was a new album. I didn't want to just be playing old stuff, uh, much as I love it. Uh, and then some of the old stuff started to really come good because I realized I'd never played it before, except the one night we recorded it. Like Sgt. Pepper, for instance. I played guitar and uh, bass and sang and stuff on the session. And we got it together, got the song together. Yo! And good night. And we never played it ever again till I'm playing it now. So I was playing it thinking, this feels fresh. Why don't I feel worn out with this? You know, what is it? And it was, I've never played it before. This is great. Wow. You know, even in the last few years, he's taken on to performing Beatles songs that that he's never done before. And for him, it's interesting because it's, it's a new experience. Like he's mm-hmm. going, like, how come I don't know how to play this? And then he realizes it's because they never played them live. <laughs> no, and remarkable. I, I don't know if you heard, there's a, there's a live album uh, from just a couple of years ago and he's doing... A day in the life. Oh my gosh! And you're just going like, like, this must be mind-boggling for him, but it's also mind-boggling for the live audience who are hearing this song performed by a Beatle for the very first time. It's an exceptional version, um, um, and it's you know, arguably the greatest song they ever did. Now. That's an argument that could take. This a whole... could be a long conversation, <laughs> folks. Settle in. Yeah, we won't get into that right now. But, but you... I have to ask you something. Yeah. Just on that note, have you heard the remix of Sgt. Pepper? No, I haven't. I've heard little clips of it because I've been listening to interviews with Giles Martin. Oh right, yeah. And so I've heard clips here and there, and it's like the sonically, it's a lot brighter, and many of the elements uh, jump out at me. But I haven't heard it from beginning to end. It's gotten mixed reviews. I loved it. It blew my mind. Here was a record that I'd been listening to for 50 years. I know it like the inside of my, you know, hand. And I'm thinking, I've never heard that before. Like in Day in the Life, for example, you know where they do the big piano chord Mm -hmm. at the end? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a little organ pad at the very bottom of that. I never could hear that before. And it's a small thing, but if you're a Beatle geek like we are, then that matters. Yeah. 
And um, the bottom end is so clear, and you just hear the bass playing. I mean, Ringo's drumming is a revelation. Yes. I, I was, I loved it. Oh, can we talk for an hour about Ringo and what a great drummer he is <laughs> and how underrated he is and how no other, the, like everything from Here Comes the Sun to Come Together to A Day in the Life, those songs would be nothing without Ringo, mm. or we don't have to talk about that if you don't want. I like to sit in front of the telly and go bang, bang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, what else you got for us uh, well, uh, from your interview? All right. Confession, being a songwriter, I could not help but take the opportunity to ask the man behind 32 number one songs how he went about his work. Um, He was very open and and self-effacing and ever the entertainer, as you can tell from this clip coming up. He basically says he has no pattern, no ritual, no ability to write music down, and no inclination to keep a lyric notebook. I like to think like there isn't a way to do it. There is no formula, you know, so I kind of, I'm always trying to learn how to do it. So every way tends to be, uh, every time it tends to be a different way. You know, sometimes it will just be noting down a few great phrases or something. In the past, I've done a lot of that. You know, it'd normally be somebody says something, like Ringo, you know, well, oh, that was a hard day's night. Or a a chauffeur once, I was driving out to John's to a a writing session. He used to live uh, a couple of hours outside London, a place called Weybridge and a uh, very golfy area of it. So I took a car out there and had this man drive me out there. And he was talking away, you know, Paul, well, I was lovely. Oh, yeah. I said, you know, how's tricks then? You know, how have you been doing it? She said, oh, I'm working eight days a week. I said, oh, yeah. So I got to John's place. Hey, I've got a great idea, you know. I like that. And it just arrives on your doorstep and you think, I've never heard of a song called that, you know. Oh, that's great. And I wonder if that guy who said eight days a week is wondering if he should have gotten a songwriting credit for that. <laughs> you can't copyright a title. Yes. That's oh, tr- yeah, that is th- true. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. One of the things that he talked about was that moment on stage at Live Aid. Um, we all remember when he started into um, Let It Be and then the PA died. And it was one of those, no kind of moments and uh but he talked about it he said yeah maybe i should have rehearsed (laughs) um of course you know that's one of the most enduring and best loved songs from the the beatles catalog he took me back to the night before to use another reference uh writing the song and what inspired it and who mother mary is well originally uh, see my mother was called mary so uh, in the song, I was actually talking about a real experience when I'd be a bit freaked out in the 60s due to some of the heavy sedation we'd put ourselves under. And um, all a little bit too crazy, folks, remember, you know. But um, it, was, it was, I was a bit sort of freaked out and stuff, and I'd had a, a bad night there or something, you know. And uh, I'd come to sleep, and my mum, who died when I was 14, had sort of come in a dream and stuff it was all it was a bit kind of spiritual and she sort of said it'll be all right you know and it'd been a real relief to me you know those you know dreams can be like that and um so i i next day i think i was writing this song and i said in my darkest hour mother mary comes to me meaning my mother mary but knowing that it was also uh it would have the religious overtones you know the minute you say mother mary most people assume it's the virgin mary you know uh, but I was kind of playing with that. In fact, in my case, it meant my mother. Um, so it did. Get, it, it started to get a kind of religious thing, and uh, 
one of the ideas that we had around about the time we were going to record it was to teach it to a church choir to, or a congregation even, you know, for about three or four weeks before the session to say, here's this song, you know, get it all together on the church one. And then that would be kind of the backing to it. We, we decided not to do that in the end, as you probably guessed. Okay, Christopher, do you remember a few minutes ago when I said to you that A Day in the Life was the best Beatles song ever? I do. Okay, I'd like to revise that, maybe put it in a first place tie with Let It Be. It's just, uh, every time I hear that song, it, like I always stop what I'm doing, listen to it, and the, and the way it peaks near the end. And also, a few years ago, they released uh, a stripped down version of Let It Be called Let It Be Naked. Right. Maybe the worst title of a remix album ever. <laughs> yeah. right? you, yeah. don't wanna, you don't want to tell people you listen to the Beatles' Let It Be Naked. But, <laughs> no. but what it is, it's the Let It Be album without all of Phil Spector's strings mm-hmm. and production touches and done almost like a live off the floor album the way it was originally recorded. Yeah. I think it's exceptional. I think it actually improves the album a little bit. The Long and Winding Road is way better without the strings in yeah. my opinion. It sounds like a band that's deeply committed to that song doing a great cover of The Long and Winding Road and then you realize, oh, it's actually the Beatles and it's actually the original take or takes. Yeah, that was McCartney's initiation, and I, I yeah. can understand. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, Let It Be, Long and Winding Road, those are two of the greatest songs from his catalog. Mm-hmm. Why not go back and make it the way you always wanted it? By the way, I do, I do want to jump in, speaking of you being a noted songwriter. You've written a lot of songs over the years, and I think probably the best known is a song, Black Velvet, that was a hit for Alana Miles, mm-hmm. and you co-wrote that song. Like, Tell, tell me what, what your, your part of that song was. I wrote most of the song. I had the uh, the verse and the chorus of the song. We were gathering songs for Alana's first album, and Dave, her producer, said, uh, you know, we could really use a shuffle. You know, the shuffle is that classic uh, blues, you know, right. dun, 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 kind of beat. And he always wanted to produce something. And I said, oh, well, I got this song I've been working on, literally. I sang the verse and the chorus, and Alana just loved it because right. she likes that sort of steamy, you know, southern kind of vibe, right? Right. Like, you know, son of a preacher, man, like that right. kind of feel. Oh, man. So um, I played it, and Dave said, um, well, do you have a bridge yet? And I said, no. He said, well, do you mind if I take a crack at writing one? I'm like, no, that'd be great. So he came back the next day with the music for the bridge. So, uh, and that's explain, the part that goes, yeah. um, you know, every word of every song that he sang was for you. Yeah. But it's The bridge only happens once right. in the song. but uh, So I wrote the rest of it. So yeah. Did you write Mississippi in the middle of a dry spell? I sure did. Oh, boy. What a great line. Well, you know, you uh, you have quite a uh, history of songwriting in Canada and around the world. And I know Black Velvet, for example, was a hit around the world. And I do want to ask you a little bit more about that, but that'll be in a different show. But okay. I want to ask you some pretty pointed questions about what it's like to be a songwriter and the benefits and the drawbacks and <laughs> if you can make a career out of that, all that kind of thing. Yes, well, we will talk. Um, okay, so right now we're going to do our very first edition of When Rock Stars Attack. Okay. And this, I love this clip so much. I sent it to you. I emailed it to you the other day. And this is circa 1983-82. Stuart Copeland is the drummer for the police. One of the most influential people on me in terms of a drummer. I'm a terrible drummer. And actually, once I heard Stuart Copeland drum, 
I said, okay, well, I can't do that, so I quit. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I'm back at it. And, you know, I only drop the beat maybe once per song. So I'm, that's a real improvement for me. But uh, he was a huge influence, and I loved his drumming so much. Mm-hmm. And so he's in The Police, maybe my favorite group of the early 80s. They release five albums, and it's a contentious relationship between the members of the group. Yeah. So someone asks Stuart to, to talk about Sting writing pop songs, and this is what Stuart had to say. The best way to get Sting foaming at the mouth is to call his music pop music. I'll remember that. Well, uh, but you just, as you just said, it is important for him to have hit songs, and so it's, a, it's the perfect one. It works every time. <laughs> he needs that acceptance. Uh, um, all that his songs are like. He doesn't need acceptance from anybody. He has enough faith in his material, and with talent like that, it's hardly surprising. Um, he, he, if, he, if his songs weren't hit songs, he would just think it's because the world is crazy. Um, anybody who doesn't like his music has got a problem. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, when you've got talent like that, I suppose you can have that kind of arrogance, too. Okay. So, <laughs> Stewart is still in the police when he says all this. Yeah. Like, that is nuts. When you call your lead singer the creative force behind your band, th- maybe the most arrogant guy in pop music. Oh, I just love that clip. It's so it's just I get tingles when I feel when I hear people fighting like that, even though I'm I'm definitely an avoider when it comes to confrontation like that. Mm-hmm. But that that clip made me laugh. Well, he probably thought, well, what are you going to do? Fire me? You know, exactly. I mean, as you say, I mean, Stuart Copeland was a remarkable is a remarkable drummer. Mm-hmm. I mean, his style was utterly unique. His style was unique. But I know that it used to drive sting to distraction because while while Stuart Copeland's style was unique, I think his meter was a little bit off in live performances. Ah. And he used to drive Sting as the bassist, mm. half of the rhythm section. It used to drive him nuts that when uh, when Stuart would speed up, slow down. And because because Copeland's riffs and couplets and you know drum rolls and all, all the things that he was doing were so intricate, it was, it was his his meter wasn't always perfect. That's my oh. understanding, anyway. Stuart, if you're listening, I think you're the best drummer ever. Well, maybe next to Ringo Starr, but um, <laughs> but you know you could see that uh, you could see there were real personalities there. And of course, Stuart Copeland actually started the Police, so in his mind, this is his band, right? right? Yeah. And for the third voice in this triumvirate of you know dysfunction, have have a uh, have a look at um, Stuart. Um, Andy Summers' book, it's, I think it's called One More Train or One Train oh, Later or something. Oh, I haven't read it. Is, it. is it good? It is a very good book. He's yeah. a very bright man. Yeah, he's a very bright guy. And he was the oldest. He was kind of the senior citizen of the mm-hmm. band. But he tells the story of the, of the breakup and how hard it was for him because he knew that he would never be in something as great. But then you can also see Sting's point of view. They're his songs. Mm-hmm. They're his melodies. They're his lyrics. And he goes off to his fairly successful music career, and he doesn't have to answer it to anybody else. He's calling the shots. So when Stuart Copeland is calling him an arrogant beep, you know, <laughs> why would he have to put up with that? You're Sting, for God's sake. Yeah. But yeah. As, a, as a police fan, when they broke up right after Synchronicity, which I think is, you know, artistically fantastic— when they broke up after that, I was pretty. I was pretty upset by that. Yeah. Well, did you interview Sting, or did he come in? Uh, he's been in. We have a few interviews with him, right. so I've heard a couple of the interviews yeah. that we have in our archives, but I haven't met him personally. Yeah, JD did one. I, I didn't do Sting. He uh, he went over to England to do it, and he has that ability that actually so many of the British rock stars do, of saying 
the most mundane thing with the most posh accent of all time. So it sounds really significant. Yes. You know, like, well, marmalade was a little lumpy this morning on my uh, scone, you see. So I found that as I was composing, it influenced me in remarkable, yeah. uh, you know, Sorry. Oh, I know. And I like when people would take him down a little bit, like um, that whole tantric sex thing, <laughs> right? When Sting was saying that he could go for eight hours. And <clears throat> I think it was Steven Tyler said, yeah, what Sting isn't saying is that also includes the dinner and a movie. <laughs> go, Steven. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of Steven Tyler, let's talk about one of the greatest songs of all time, and it is Walk This Way by Aerosmith. First of all, there's so many facts to unpack about this song. Let's go to one of the sources. Let's hear what Tom Hamilton, the bassist of Aerosmith, has to say about the creation of the song. Well, we, uh, I was listening to a lot of the Meters, a band from New Orleans, kind of a funk band, and I was thinking that, uh, and you know, we've always played some funk in this band. You know, Joey was a drummer in a, and like a, like a black show band and you know like we we'd always had that element you know doing James Brown songs and stuff so I thought it would be a good idea to have something with that beat so we started fooling around with that and, and uh, I think I wrote the the riff at a sound check in Hawaii and uh, then we took it from there and we took it into to, to New York and you guys were watching uh, with Jack they were watching Young Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein said walk this way and just kind of went from there. Oh, you remember that scene? This way? You know? No, this way. And he does the cane thing yeah, walking yeah, down well, the stairs. Igor, the... Uh, I'll, I'll spell it out in detail. Igor, the uh, Dr. Frankenstein's assistant, uh, says, walk this way, after picking Gene Wilder up at the uh, train station. And he, and he sort of takes a cane and hobbles down the stairs. And then he hands Gene Wilder the cane so, so he can do it the same. And we were just freaking out about that. And... Uh, it was actually a, a Stooges, Three Stooges gag that they did. And so, you know, Stephen came in and we said, Hey, Stephen, the song is Walk This Way. You've got to call it. And, he, you know, he's like, What do you mean? Who are you telling me the title? I'm the one who has to write the lyrics. But he went and did it. And he did it, you know, came out good. Okay, so now we know kind of where the title of Walk This Way comes from. Right. But what about that distinctive beat? Now, I don't know if you knew, Steve Tyler is actually a drummer. That right. was his first incarnation as a musician. Right. And so... But the scarf he, got in the way, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but he claims that he actually had to teach Joey Kramer how to be a better drummer. Oh, oh when rock stars attack. And um, <laughs> so they're doing a sound check. They're doing a sound check in Honolulu. Right. And uh, Joey's not at the uh, drum kit yet. And Joe Perry starts playing... And Steven Tyler runs back to the drum kit and starts going, dunk, ch, da, dunk, dunk, ch. and he picks up that riff, and then he ends up teaching it to Joey Kramer, who he calls in, ah. his, in his book, not the best drummer in the world. And then, but eventually, he teaches him how to do that and a bunch of other things. And then in, uh, about two paragraphs later in the book, he calls Joey Kramer the best drummer in the world. Oh, okay. He, he redeems <laughs> once, himself, doesn't once he? he taught, once he taught him, right? <laughs> So the, the, that Ouch. book, by the way, is called Stephen Tyler, Does the Noise in My Head Bother You? And that is perfectly 
uh, emblematic of what this book is, uh, of how this book is written. It's very nonlinear. It's very like, you know how Stephen Tyler does that scatty thing all the yeah, time? Like on Ragdoll? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's how this book is written. And at times, it's fantastic. If you can get into that groove with him, it's a great read. Mm-hmm. And at times, you just want to slap him upside the head. But it's definitely worth reading. There's some great stories. Um, it's uh, very sentimental at times, especially when it comes to talking about older family members. Um, I think it's his mom. Sorry, it's been a while since I've read this, but yeah. um, but it's but it's uh, but it's a very good read. Uh, sometimes you have to wade through it a little bit. Cool. Yeah. Well, Walk This Way, of course, was a big hit for Aerosmith back in 1975 when Toys in the Attic came out. But it was like 11 years later when it became an even bigger hit, and it entered the video universe when they did the duet with Run DMC, who, by the way, wanted no part of this. They didn't know who Aerosmith was. It was producer Rick Rubin's idea that they jam on this thing. Oh, wow. Well, in fact, DMC called the lyrics country gibberish. (laughs) (laughs) But what happened is it became the first Billboard Top 5 hip-hop song. And it also broke down all kinds of barriers with that video, particularly at MTV in the U.S., who were not playing black videos. Mm-hmm. Now, so. was much music playing? Much music was playing black videos oh, for yes. certain, right? Playing oh, a lot yeah. of R&B, playing a lot of mm-hmm. funk. Uh, very much rap at that point? Oh, yeah. We played all that stuff. Right. With rap, is, Was Rap City a part of the uh, universe at that point? Not in the early days. Not, okay. This, this would have been like in 86. So these, these are very early mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah. Well, like you said, it broke down a lot of doors, and it also cr- it almost created a new subgenre of of uh, R and B and hip hop um, with where, rock guitar with, with rock guitar, yeah. right? And that was that was a great sound. And it's funny, I didn't know that they did not want to do that song yeah. because it fits them so well, and it was such a huge hit. And it's probably what they're best known for, which in a way, when they don't think it necessarily reflects them, that's a bit of a shame. But they like that for that raising hell album is, is amazing all on its own yeah. even if you took walk this way out but still that is a great version of the song and the video with the wall between them yes uh, genius <laughs> we're playing back some great moments from our deep well of classic interviews in our final segment this week we talk about one of our favorite canadian bands arguably the greatest canadian band ever the guess who so hang on before we go on are we going to have <laughs> I this knew that to arg- get you going are we going to have this argument right now of course okay so uh, I'd, I'd like to make a point that the the guests who are the greatest Canadian band ever and I'm not one of these throwback old guys who only listens to music pre-1975 um, you know I like a lot of current uh, current music you know there's a band out of Hamilton called the Arkells which I, I absolutely love them mm-hmm. and there's been you know bands over the last uh, many years who have really made their mark on Canadian music you could put forth an argument that uh, that the Tragically Hip are perhaps the greatest Canadian band. There's so many iconic songs. Um, and of course, who can, who can forget Rush? My favorite Canadian song ever is uh, Spirit of Radio by Rush. But we can talk right. about that another time. But yeah, what do you think, Christopher? I have a problem comparing bands from different eras. Okay. I mean, yes, Rush. Yes, The Hip. Of course, the Guess Who. Right. But then, can you compare them to Arcade Fire? And maybe, arguably, it's it's not just about musicality and song, you know, content. It's more about the history of a band. Yeah, and, and the and impact how that they had. The impact, yes. they, exactly, mm-hmm. and how their reputation stands up over time and how their music wears over right. the years. And, and the Guess Who fit all of those categories. But for me, the most important aspect of the Guess Who is that they were pioneers. They were breaking down barriers, and they were becoming a worldwide success when nobody else had done it. 
Nobody had broken down those walls beforehand. And it was before we had Canadian content regulations on radio mm-hmm. when the Guess Who broke. Mm-hmm. So if, if my timing is correct on that. So they didn't get the help that some acts subsequently did, um, but they still, you know, conquered the world. And, you know, one of the things about the Guess Who that I absolutely love is someone who is, you know, the guardian of all these uh, interview archives that we're talking about week after week, is that maybe the two best talkers about Canadian music are Randy Bachman mm-hmm. and Burton Cummings. Yeah. And they were both in the same band. Boy, we, you know, I'd like to, in future weeks, play some great interview moments from both Burton and Randy. Oh, yeah. Uh, but right now, I want to play a short clip of an interview with Burton from 1987. And this kind of speaks to what you were just saying about their impact. So the Guess Who are being inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame at the Juno Awards, broadcast live on the CBC so Burton picks up the story from the moment they're coming up to the stage to accept the award. Well, yes. What happened, Burton? <laughs> I don't know. They, oh, they faded to black is what happened. Uh, you our, went up to accept Our the... big moment, you know. I, w- yeah. I really felt devastated. I really felt crushed. Uh, it was just one of those technical screw-ups. Um, somebody in the truck, I guess, in the remote truck outside panicked because we didn't go right to the podium. And... Rather than rather than send someone out to lead us to the podium, they faded to a commercial. So oh. still, I still figured we'd get to, to thank everybody when they came back. Mm-hmm. But they let us off the stage, and that was the end of it. And I was really... Uh, first of all, I was incensed. Then after a while, I just felt crushed. And then after a while, I just felt like nobody gave a damn. You know, it really took the wind out of our sails. I mean, we had... Good Lord. I mean, we were the Canadian industry at one time. We were the Canadian music industry. Our band was 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 almost 90% responsible for all Canadian record sales at one point, and I really thought that was cheesy to get cut off like that. But to make up for it, they, they did do a nice half-hour documentary, which I still haven't seen, but at least they made the effort to, to compensate for it. But Is that they, enough, though? In some ways, it wasn't, because the moment was gone, mm-hmm. you know? It's... it's, it's once the moment is gone, that's it. You know, it was kind of hindsight, but they did their... It wasn't really any one specific person's fault. It was just fate dealt us a kind of a strange blow. Do you have a good relationship now with the CBC Television Network? I've... You know, I really always have had a good relationship for, for one specific reason. In 1967 and 68, we were on national television every week for two years. That really saved the guess who. We were, in, we were so far in debt from a highway bus and great amplifiers and silk suits and equipment and all the best stuff. We were making $150 a night. You know, you can't you can't put a show on like that at that kind of money. Along comes the CBC in 1967 says, hey guys, how about a national show weekly? 36 weeks a year for two, for two years. We did like 80 shows in two years and they really saved the band. And out of that... Out of that weekly show, Randy and I became a songwriting team. I mean, we wrote these eyes while we were doing that show. We, really, I, I owe a lot to the CBC, so I, uh, I'm, I have no, no, nothing against the CBC at all. They really helped make our career. 
Okay, so that's Burton Cummings from 1987, shortly after they've been snubbed by the Juno Awards, not making it up to the stage in time to accept their induction in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And he describes very well his devastation at that and not being at not being honored and not being respected enough to be able to make that that. And imagine how you would feel, Christopher. You've done all this. You've had all these hits, uh, you know, in an era when there's not a lot of support for the Canadian music industry and you don't get up there. You don't get the chance to get up there and and, and say your thanks. Mm, that's a tough one. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they had worldwide hits, as we all know. But still, when you come home and you're getting your big moment in the place where you were born, it matters. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? It's always interesting, sometimes listening to American radio stations, um, when, whenever, you know, these eyes are undone or American woman comes on, I always feel this pride knowing that they made it at a time when there wasn't really a Canadian industry and they and they sounded great and they still do. Those songs hold up so well, surprisingly oh, no well. No Sugar Tonight. Yeah. I, Part of the reason for that is Jack Richardson. Mm-hmm. He produced all those records. And that's why I think the Juno Award for Best Producer is named after him now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. That's our very first episode of Famous Lost Words. Hope you enjoyed it. We still have a few hundred more interviews and clips to play for you in the coming weeks and months, including fascinating chats with the late George Michael, also Glenn Fry and Don Henley, separately. John Mayer speaking as only he can, and a couple of great chats with Tina Turner, one of them done during her comeback years in the 80s, and another one from 2000, a very revealing long-form interview. Thanks to our producer Adam Karsh for his hard work, and thanks also to Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis for the Janet Jackson interview. Join us again next time on Famous Lost Words. <laughs>